the lack of pedestrian infrastructure often forces people to jaywalk, especially in low-income communities of color. Anywhere a person jaywalks, you know, one should ask themselves, why are they doing it? And we should probably build a crosswalk there or probably build some kind of infrastructure, right? And so, but the thing is, you cannot have that conversation if you criminalize it, if you automatically make that action a crime. The best way to get the government to redesign a road is to sue them after somebody has been killed there. This transportation system that we have compared to other transportation systems in the world is horrific. So today we're going to talk about legalizing jaywalk, which kind of would sound shocking to people that we want to legalize jaywalking to a lot of people because we've sort of culturalized in the last, what, 70, 80 years that walking in the street is illegal and wrong when in fact it wasn't, uh, what, like a hundred years ago, it wasn't illegal to just walk in the street. Like people did that normally. And then when the, with the appearance of cars, um, pedestrians started getting killed a lot and they started to criminalize and criminalize walking in the street. Am I, am I summarizing that right, John? Yeah, no, that, I mean, it was, it was made by the, the car industry to keep as pedestrians as close to the buildings as possible and as clear as the roadways for the cars as possible. So totally. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to talk about that with, um, with uh, Jared Sanchez, if he is going to be on, I don't know if he's going to be on, but he's with Calbike and he's the senior policy advocate. And uh, we're also going to talk about pedestrian issues with you, John, including what is known as the Encino Pedestrian Bridge, which crosses the 101 in uh, Encino at Encino Avenue, uh, over between Burbank. Boulevard, I believe, and I uh, forget what the street is south of there, but the neighborhood south of there. So what's, what's the story with that? Um, are, you know, I've, I've read the Biking in LA article um, where there, Caltrans was putting up, was giving the choice to the public to have it or not. Have they decided yet? So yeah, this was notified to us by one of our community members. Uh, she happens to live in the area. Um, and so she's got a notice and she shared that with us. And from the research and through the digging that we've done, it's, yeah, it's sort of already baked in and the bridge is gonna be removed. And the issue wasn't so much the bridge being removed because there were some damages with it. There's some issues with trucks hitting the bridge. The issue that we had is the bridge was, wasn't gonna be replaced. And so the impact that that would have happened and, you know, you're sort of mentioning the, about the pedestrian bridge, but for those folks who might not know too much, it would go over the 101, which as many engineers know is one of the busiest freeways in LA, it would connect a major commercial corridor with the residential area. Uh, but with the bridge gone, it would have risked, um, you know, residents having to walk up to two miles in different directions to get to the area and not only would they have to walk extra, but they would also have to compete with car traffic as opposed to having a dedicated bridge for pedestrians. And so, yeah, one of our big, big points were, you know, for a city that has a commitment to Vision Zero, which for your, your listeners is to have zero car crash fatalities by 2025, uh, removing a pedestrian bridge over one of the busiest freeways is not the way to go about it. So, yeah, so we sort of raised the flag on this and got some members, uh, community members to write letters in support for, to replace the bridge and to not only tear it down, but to replace it. Cool. So do we have the, has Caltrans made a decision yet? We have not heard back yet. No. And I mean, I've looked looking at the map. I'm kind of familiar with the area, but there's there's apartment buildings to the north, and there's kind of a single family housing to the south. Um, how's you know? Is there support amongst the folks in the single family housing area? Like, what what does the opposition look like? What is what's the support? You know, I, I, we haven't done like a deep sort of surveying of the area, so I, I don't want to speak too confidently about the community support, but from the stories we've heard, I mean, this is where things get complicated, right? I mean, this is always, I think it's always complicated, which is, you know, there is a house is 
community there. And from what I'm hearing, they also happen to be taking the bridge space as a space for shelter. And so I think that that combined with the bridge and disrepair, I think just generally a lot of the community residents um, might not have been happy with it. And so the impulse is just, hey, let's get rid of it altogether. Now, I've seen that um, growing up in L.A. a lot where pedestrian infrastructure uh, gets deleted because it falls into crime or homelessness. That just seems to be like the habit that, that our city has for decades now. Um, you can find a lot of uh, stairways that, that are caged up and closed off or pedestrian passages that go under streets that are closed off um, over where I grew up uh, by the 101 freeway in Hollywood. There's a couple of tunnels that went under the 101 freeway so you could get across. Those are now closed up. This seems to be a pattern and it's, it's still happening. What, what do we do? You know, the way that things respond in Los Angeles is you just need a community to push back on these projects, right? The same, I mean, push back against the removal of these kind of infrastructure, the same push that you get from community members that don't want bus lanes or bike lanes. We need a sort of counterweight voice of the community uh, demanding to preserve and keep this infrastructure. And another thing I would also add is a pedestrian footbridge is great, but a pedestrian footbridge sort of sitting by itself and that is not accessible, uh, has no connections, are not, there are no regular crosswalks that lead to it. There's not enough shade that takes you to it. I mean, it, it's part of a larger ecosystem I think we're struggling with as a city is to create uh, connected walkable spaces that are not just in isolation by itself. So I think a part of the issue with a lot of this pedestrian infrastructure that's being taken away is because we're not making them easy to use for residents. And we're not making them easy to use for people. And so I think this it's part of a larger sort of ecosystem, I think, of pedestrian infrastructure you need to be investing in. So I'm going to put you um, on hold for a second. We're going to, we're going to bring in um, uh, Jared Sanchez, who is with the California Bicycle Coalition. He's the senior policy advocate. And, and we're going to talk with him about uh, AB123, which uh, CalBike is supporting and, and sponsoring. It's called the Freedom to Walk Act, which would decriminalize jaywalking, as we talked about earlier. Hey, Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you. You're on the show with Nick Richard and myself, Don Ward, co-host Bike Talk, and we also have John Yee, who is with LA Walks. You guys may or may not know each other, but uh, introduce you guys. Tell us about the Freedom to Walk Act. Yeah, definitely. Just a, a few clarifications um, based on what you said. So um, CalBike is a co-sponsor. So was LA Walks with John on the line here. So you should get some credit. Awesome. Well. Um, and then the bill is AB 1238. The last digit is eight there. So okay. um, not a huge deal, but just to clarify that. Um, and yeah, thanks again for having me on to talk about this. So <clears throat> AB 1238, or also known as the um, Freedom to Walk Act, as we're calling it, um, is a bill um, being authored by Assembly Member um, Phil Ting, who's based in San Francisco, that will do exactly what you said in terms of decriminalized jaywalking. Um, another way to put it is that we're repealing um, California's jaywalking laws. Um, the three major Reasons for this um, are, are pretty clear, and the data shows that these are pretty clear um, examples. Um, one is um, that um, jaywalking is often a common sense, rational behavior, um, but unfortunately, those who are stopped and ticketed or cited for jaywalking happen to be Black Californians. Um, we found that almost four and a half times more likely Black folks are to be stopped and cited for jaywalking compared to their white counterparts, and jaywalking has been um, a huge tool for um, policing agencies across the country um, to use as um, pretextual policing, which is essentially um, finding a reason to uh, detain, um, harass, search um, a resident um, who may just be committing a very harmless or, or minor traffic violation. In this case, is jaywalking, but there's many other infractions that are being included in this. So. The biggest piece is that jaywalking has been used by law enforcement to racially profile folks. Um, and this is certainly a, a big interest for racial justice and mobility justice folks on that end. Um, the second piece is more of an economic justice argument um, and issue. 
the starting fine for a jaywalking ticket is almost $200. It can quickly ramp up um, to many more hundreds or thousands of dollars if you miss a court date or miss a deadline. Fees are easily added on. So obviously, um, those who can least afford it are often most burdened um, with these fines and fees. There is an effort across the state and the country to eliminate a lot of unnecessary fees and fines that happen to burden low-income communities of color as well. And this jaywalking issue um, fits neatly into that, especially since um, many folks who use walking as a form of transportation happen to be low-income Californians as well on top of that. Um, and the third piece, um, which might be most relevant to you and your audience is, and what Zhang was just speaking to, is the lack of pedestrian infrastructure that often forces people to jaywalk, especially in low-income communities of color. Many times there's half a mile or more space between intersections where folks don't have crosswalks, don't have signal timing, just don't have the infrastructure there to make it easy to cross the street. So in many cases, they're forced to jaywalk to get to the places they need to go, grocery stores, hospital, friends, parks, whatever it is on their daily lives, jobs, um, and are put in a tough spot and often police are already in the community where they're living and, and can very easily target folks for this. Um, we quickly looked at the data. There's a few agencies that have publicly available data. The rest I'm going through and still trying to work out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but again, as I mentioned, um, uh, for I think it was LAPD, for Los Angeles County Sheriff, for the San Diego Police Department, um, and one more I'm blanking on at the moment, but there was oh, Long Beach Police Department, all ranged from three to four and a half times uh, more likely for black folks to be stopped for jaywalking. So the data is clear on this. Um, there's still thousands of tickets being issued and a lot of thousands of people being stopped every year for this issue. And it's time that we end it. So that's the summary of the bill. I'm glad to have John and other co-sponsors like the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area and California Walks to join me. And we're looking to have the first committee hearing in about a week and a half now to see how far this can go. So I'll stop there and yeah, I'd love to take questions or if you want me to expand a little more on anything. Well, let's talk technically speaking. So what, you know, when people hear jaywalking, uh, to you know, making jaywalking legal or making walking across the street legal. How do you, you know, how how does the law work? How would the law work if you were to say cross, um, and get hit by a car? You know, where is the legal liability lie there? Like, what? How 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 would it work in that in that way? Yeah, no, this is an important question that I think, yeah, comes up a lot as I talk more and, and introduce folks to this piece of legislation. Um, and I'll, I'll highlight different pieces around it, but maybe the first part that's important to start with, in which I didn't mention the technical aspects of the bill, which we can definitely get into more later, but the biggest piece is that we're repealing code sections that stop mid-block crossings, which is i.e. jaywalking. Um, However, what we're not touching within statute is existing law. And there's several places in statute that already point to this where pedestrians already as part of their kind of role and responsibility as being a user of the road um, are not permitted um, to put themselves, as they say, in a, in, a, in a situation of an immediate hazard or, or constituting an immediate hazard. So there's two code sections in, in the law um, that we're not touching that still make that illegal. Um, and the big question for us is always what constitutes an immediate hazard? What is that exactly? Um, and the existing law is already pretty vague, um, but fortunately working with the Assembly Transportation Committee and others, we have identified in case law, also known as what's known, I'm not a lawyer, but it's what's known as a jury instruction where um, there's a very brief and short example of what constituting immediate hazard is. And it doesn't expand much more than say that a car is coming so near and so fast that it, it's a dangerous situation. So many times the um, police officer um, is often making a, a subjective interpretation of the law. 
Um, and we're expecting that that won't go away, but we're hoping that adding this clarity, really strengthening laws that are already on the books about protecting pedestrians from walking into traffic, which we're not suggesting in any way, um, and really being clear that um, when it's safe to cross, when there are uh, appears to be no cars present, um, and when there isn't an immediate hazard, um, someone may be able to cross um, safely um, if they choose to do that. Um, so that, that's the technical aspects. We're still working on, you know, the details about, you know, what those exactly mean, what law enforcement thinks about it. Currently, um, no police agencies or law enforcement agencies have come out in opposition for the bill. We haven't had any conversations with law enforcement in particular. So we're kind of in the unknown state of what um, they're thinking and expecting. Um, however, we have spoke to um, several different um, insurance agencies um, who are um, satisfied with existing law and that they really don't see any liability issue here that we're changing with. So they're gonna remain neutral on this bill. So for your question around liability, I think the existing law already covers that and that's something we're not touching at all. So hopefully that's a, a good enough answer for what you were thinking. Yeah, I mean, something that kind of that uh, bothers me a little bit is that, well, right now, like for example, in Los Angeles, LADOT has removed tons of crosswalks over the last 10 years or more. And it's almost like this would excuse them from ever putting those back, you know? Um, like, oh, well, you can just cross the street, so therefore we don't need to make it safer to cross the street it's on you now kind of thing do you feel like that's possible like a possible result of that or is there you know like that that just feels like when when pedestrians get hit it's the cops usually come down on the side of the car driver it seems like i mean i've seen lots of stories where people are even get hit, getting hit in crosswalks and the car driver is not held accountable. Now moving forward, that's one of my concerns is like that this would enable that more, I guess you could say. Yeah, no, I think that's a valid question and maybe John can speak more to this, especially what's happening locally in Los Angeles, um, I mean, not always yeah. on the ground um, on this. But maybe just to say real fast, um, yeah, I think that 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 may be a valid concern if uh, I guess we weren't already taking into consideration the, the millions and billions of dollars that at least at the state level is already investing to save pedestrian infrastructure, including bicycling infrastructure, that I think cities are also doing and increasing and expanding. So I don't see that going away anytime soon, especially as the, the fervor for sustainable transportation grows, especially for active transportation like we're talking about now. So the, we're just talking about aligning those investments with the ability for folks to cross when they need to, because many times this infrastructure takes years, if not many dozens of years to actually be implemented and in the ground. So we're, act, we're asking for a way for folks to, to get along their way um, safely and accessibly in the meantime. Um, and it is actually one last thing I'll say is um, uh, there was a concern um, from elected officials um, kind of around this issue, but they were actually more concerned that um, or they thought that this would actually lead and incentivize local cities to um, expand their bike and pe uh, pedestrian infrastructure. This would um, somehow, you know, you know, uh, put more uh, onus on them uh, to uh, really expand their infrastructure, not only in all communities across the state, but in black and brown communities in particular, which lacked them the most. So I'm kind of leaning towards that side in terms of being more of an inspiration for, for cities and folks to get infrastructure in, but I don't know. Uh, John, you wanna go ahead? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's a valid point. I mean, if history teaches us anything, it's we always kind of have to look at it with some of suspicion and. You know, I think that the impulse to think of this- and, and not, not that I'm suspicious, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I support this, it's just yeah, that yeah. I don't want to see it become oh, totally. an excuse to not put in crosswalks. Is what yeah, no, I, I mean, I guess, I, guess the, I, I totally feel that impulse, especially the sort of a race to the bottom mentality of like, 
of yeah of, of something like this I, I i i would agree with jared i kind of lean on the other end and let me put it this way anywhere a person jaywalks you know one should ask themselves why are they doing it and we should probably build a crosswalk there or probably build some kind of infrastructure right and so but the thing is, you cannot have that conversation if you criminalize it, if you automatically make that action a crime. That conversation mm -hmm. stops right there because at, at a certain point it becomes a legal thing and that person is no longer a question of why is she or he doing this, but it's more about they're doing something illegal. And so and I, I agree with Jared. I think this, if anything, tells is, is able to give an agency like LADOT, which, is, which are full of people who do want to create more pedestrian infrastructure, but often are operating in a broken system. But I think it provides that ability, but we can't do that if we automatically make it a crime by the code. So this, this is kind of the equivalent of, of uh, allowing for desire paths on the streets, right? Like, hey, pedestrians want to cross here all the time. I don't know how they're going to observe it, but they, they should somehow be able to observe that and then maybe that will inspire them to create a crosswalk there. I mean, similar to the way we do with cars. If there's congestion in a certain area or a traffic issue, or there's some kind of crisis that doesn't make the mo motion of cars work or mobility, engineers come in and redesign things, you know, change the speed X, Y, Z. And we do not have that kind of same prioritization when it comes to pedestrians because we automatically make it a crime. So I think it's leveling that playing field. Right. Okay, well, that's good news. Um... And tell us about the next steps and what we should be looking for and if we need to be making phone calls and who to for AB1238. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, thanks again for giving us this, this platform um, to speak. So as I mentioned, um, it's going to get its first hearing in the Assembly Transportation Committee April 26th, so two Mondays from now. Um, we just submitted our coalition letter, but they're still receiving letters of support up until Monday at noon. So if anybody wants to get those in, um, maybe for your audience, it'd be good to know about the specific members on the transportation committee. I think there's at least a handful or more that are in the Los Angeles area that I think residents, community members, anybody who wants to support this can certainly lobby their representative on this. Um, assembly member Mike Gibson, um, is in there, uh, Assemblymember O'Donnell in Long Beach, um, Chair Friedman, who's obviously in the Glendale area. There's a couple more I'm blanking on right now, but I would love, and I think all of us would love <laughs> co-sponsoring and supporting this is to certainly um, get the word out, make sure that your representative is aware of this, that they're supportive of this. Um, there's certainly a, a long haul uh, to go. This would just be the first hurdle if it gets out of the committee. So there'll be plenty of more opportunities and probably even um, more important opportunities as it gets to the broader assembly or the broader Senate, when we'll definitely need a lot more support organized around this. And that will be in the next month or two. Um, but if it stays through the long haul, if it's not gutted or killed, we're expecting this to get through hopefully all the way through the summer and hopefully the governor will sign it by September. So that's the quick timeline, but yeah, I would love to come back on or let me know uh, for anything I can add um, just for um, help um, people to get more involved in the issue. All right, Jared Sanchez, thanks for coming on and giving us the, the lowdown. AB1238, um, we definitely want to have you back on with updates as this thing moves along. So thanks again. No, another thing I wanted to add, um, and I think yeah. this will support the work that Jared's doing up with, with in Sacramento, which is talk not only to your assembly members, but your city council members. I mean, they're the ones who really deal with infrastructure and street issues. It's not your assembly, since that's more of a state level. So getting your city council members, your supervisors to also opine on this saying that we like this. And so whether they write a letter of support or they as like a city council pass a motion to support it really buttresses the support for these assembly members and the senators. So I really encourage you all to talk to your city council members and local elected officials too. Okay, awesome. Maybe just to add, thank you so much, John, for mentioning that it's a really important point. I think the next step for our campaign is to really get strong city support to get city councils to vote on it and to get a lot of uh, energy from the ground up to, to pass this. So thanks, John, for mentioning that. And thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jared. All right, Jared. Thank you. Um, John, your, your work in the past involved uh, anti-tobacco campaigns. And uh, we often talk about on the show, there's a lot of frustration because things move along slowly here. And, you know, a lot of times we bring up, well, why can't we just sue somebody and make, 
you know, make this happen quicker. The, the same way that, you know, the tobacco kind of big tobacco has fallen, you know, um, over the last 20 years and 30 years. So we're going to bring on um, Josh Cohen, who is a friend and he's also uh, a prominent LA bicycle attorney in Los Angeles. And uh, we're going to get his input as well on the idea of lawsuits and, and is it something we can something that, that, that we can look at and, and a tool that we can use to, to sort of force our streets to be safer versus uh, having to go through all the legwork of lobbying politicians and going up against, you know, the powers that be. Uh, Josh Cohen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Don. Hi, guys. Good to see everybody. Um, so, I guess my understanding coming into the discussion was that we were going to be talking about um, like SUVs and trucks specifically as they affect pedestrians, but we can talk more broadly about other stuff too. And yeah, just in general of, <clears throat> of like finding a way forward the same way that, uh, you know, it's like to big tobacco, huge interest, huge money interest that had a, a powerful influence in society and a, you know, a deadly influence. And, you know, us as, as uh, safe streets advocates, we have a deadly transportation system. Whose fault is it? Is it the agencies that are designing it? Is it the automakers that are creating these cars that can go hundred miles an hour with 600 horsepower, et cetera. Um, is there a, you know, is there a pressure point that a lawsuit can, can uh, use that, that a lawsuit can, can, can find leverage where we can force safe streets to happen am i talking crazy here or like i don't know we had a conversation online and and you had mentioned that that there basically needs to be a like a victim and a pot of money that's big enough that a lawyer would take it on because you know to, to fight the powers that be we're talking about multi-billion dollar automotive industry the oil industry cities, departments of transportation, you know, how can this happen? So the biggest, the biggest um, means of, of leverage is the threat that the city is going to get hit or whatever government entity is going to get hit with a big verdict. And the way that they get hit with a big verdict First of all, you, you can't sue them to do something. The threat of being hit by a big verdict is a greater threat than the threat that you're going to sue them and somehow get a judge to order them to impose a road diet, for example, on Hyperion, which is in my neighborhood, and which I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, how to do something about Hyperion because it's a disaster. Um, but... For example, a woman was hit on the sidewalk a few years ago during a rainstorm when a driver lost control and, and she was on the sidewalk. And then like within a couple of months, another person was killed across the street on the sidewalk. And that, that section of roadway is literally my entry point onto Hyperion from my neighborhood. Um, now, hopefully those people hired lawyers who are suing the city because what needs to happen is that there needs to be a record of an unsafe condition. And the way that's documented is through Twitters or some other, you know, ongoing record keeping thing that puts the government on notice. Government has to know there has to be some objective measure that there's an unsafe condition or a problem with a section of roadway. And you can argue that if people keep getting killed on the sidewalk by cars going, you know, by that somebody at the government should have taken notice. 
So you can you argue on a broader scale though? Like that's for one intersection and maybe we can get that intersection mm -hmm. fixed, but on a broader scale, 40,000 people, millions of people injured, 40,000 people dead. Like there's, is there a way to sue because of, you know, the MUTCD, uh, the, the vehicle code, the, the way that our government designs the system? Is that possible? No, no, you can't. So here's, here's the problem. Your, your question is, can, are the courts the means by which we can design our roads? Right? Is that the question? Can we use the courts to redesign our cities, our highways, our roads? Okay. There's, no, there's no legal mechanism for that in the courts. Um, and I'll, I'll just finish saying, what, saying yeah. what I'm saying, and then maybe John's got some other insights. But, but what the law is, is that you can't compel the government to redesign, for example, an intersection. Um, there might be, you have to have a remedy in mind, a specific attainable goal. And what the law generally allows you to have is a legal remedy and the law considers a legal remedy money. So to the best way to get the government to redesign a road is to sue them after somebody has been killed there or hurt there as a result of the neck of the defective design of the road. Now, I, I don't know, John, maybe you've got some other insights that I don't. No, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not gonna even go near who we can sue or what we can sue. So I don't wanna claim that. The only thing I wanted to bring in is if there was, a, if there was an example we can compare it to, I think it would be the tobacco master settlement agreement, right? When states banded together to sue the tobacco companies for you know lying to the public about the harms of tobacco use and there's they're recorded on Congress, you know, in testimonies right. by the public. So, I mean, I, I mean, I and think what was the remedy? What was the remedy that the states sought in that lawsuit? I mean, I think one the, an element that I know is financial remedy, right? They got and even to this money. day, there's still money coming in from the tobacco companies, and California gets a lion's share of that, just population wise. But and these money right. go into anti-smoking programs, ads, and so. So yeah, I think that that's I would just point to that as an example. But I think from I think what you're trying to get at is not so much suing, but what can a lawsuit bring, which is money in the case of tobacco, you know, money to go back to the public to educate the public to you know, change lawmakers' minds. So I think I think a lawsuit it can be a mechanism to get that kind of funding. But again, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know too much. But I want to just bring up the MSA. As an Let me ask you this, Josh. You're saying, you know, you that you'd have to find it like individuals and they were killed at an intersection. Can there be a class action lawsuit on behalf of all the individuals in the system that is brought against, I don't know, either the government or maybe the auto yeah. manufacturers. I was anticipating that question. Um, Okay, and those are two separate entities, the government and auto, auto manufacturers. Yeah, I'm just trying so, to find the big money here that somebody will finally capitulate and say, okay, we'll, we'll let off and, uh, you know. Right. So, so the, the, when you talk about what is a class action lawsuit, right? A class action lawsuit is a lawsuit brought by a group of people that has to be certified as a class by the courts where they've got disparate circumstances and there's some common thread that weaves them all together that allows you to pursue one legal theory against your defendants. So for example, I mean, I sue people every day um, on behalf of my clients and every single case has different facts. And, you know, to say that like auto manufacturers can be held liable for all of the injuries by all the people who, who are injured on roads and that there's some, I mean, the only common fact is that they were all injured via a car, but 
someone's driving that car and the car is located somewhere and you know really like there are there are rules about how you drive a car and most of the time when someone is injured by someone else who was driving a car someone was breaking a rule somewhere and what that does is it gives the car manufacturer plausible deniability mm. because you know they're not they're not the ones that are driving the car when it hurts somebody um and but they're and creating they're creating transportation equipment that is well beyond the design of the transportation system there's nothing there huh? what do you mean well like they're a 600 horsepower vehicle that can go 120 miles an hour is way over designed for the system that we have there's no liability there for creating such a thing and selling it yeah but you know what gives them what insulates them is the requirement that drivers are licensed and that they're trained and that they're required to abide by the rules of the road and just because a car can go 120 miles an hour doesn't mean I mean, frankly, I've never had a client who was hurt by a car going 120 miles. Oh, no, you know what? That's not true. I did have a client who was hurt by a Tesla that crashed into a light pole and broke in half. And the back half of that Tesla hit my client, flew through the air, hit him, and then lodged four feet up in, an, in, a, um, in a doorway. So that did, oh. that's the one client I've had who's been hit by a car going 120 miles an hour. So... I, I don't disagree with you like on a, I mean, you and I think, I think we have very similar values as to how streets should work and, and, you know, how our city should be redesigned and, and, you know, the whole flawed premise of a car being what you need to get around in LA, I think is, is, is unsafe. I think it's a bad way to design a city um, and people make mistakes and they're distracted and, you know, that's usually, I mean, let's put it this way. If you were going to try and get a lawyer to take on a case where he was going to spend the kind of money or she, they were going to spend the kind of money that was necessary to sue car makers for all the people killed by, you know, if you could get a, if you could get a class certified where there was enough of a common thread um, it's one thing to say, okay, there's a products liability situation here. All of these cars had bad seatbelts. That's a class you could certify, or they all had bad airbags, which is actually a class action lawsuit where the cars crashed and the airbags ended up hurting people worse than the crash would have hurt them. The explosion it caught fire, all kinds of problems. Those are very specific things that you can tie the car makers to Josh, but for all the other people that are that are injured or killed in car crashes the facts are all just too different what about when you have car commercials that glamorize reckless driving is there no way that you can i mean do you have to show damage for everything well i mean so there's, there's a legal concept called causation, right? Um, is that what causes the crash? Well, it doesn't help. <laughs> okay. And, and it culturalizes I, speed. And, and listen, guys, I'm, I, I don't disagree that, you know, there's a problem. Yeah. What I'm saying is that, you know, the way that the law looks at its role in terms of litigation in the courts, you know, this would, it's an incredibly difficult thing, what you guys are suggesting. Now, there are, there are things you can argue, like, for example, I think, Nick, what I originally remember you reaching out to me about was the grill, like just the grills on the SUVs and trucks. Well, that you can't see children They're when they're near the vehicle they're right yeah now if 
here's the here's the sucky thing about the court system, which is that somebody's got to be hurt first for you to file the lawsuit. Because your remedy is money. Your remedy is that you're going after this manufacturer for money. If you can somehow establish that like somebody got really badly hurt as a result of the way that the hood was designed or the front bumper and that that design in and of itself was the cause of the injury and that the driver acted prudently in every other way. They got behind the seat, they looked around, they looked in front of them and they didn't see anything at all. They didn't see the kid that was like, you know, I don't know, picking up a ball in front of their, their SUV and they pulled forward and ran over the kid. And that any other hood line would have been sloping and more sensibly designed, then, you know, that might be a case. But the problem is you've got to have horrific injuries because when you sue a car manufacturer on that theory, they are going to, you know, they're going to back the truck up on you, so to speak. I used to do product liability. Um, I worked for a firm that sued oil companies for groundwater cleanup costs. And, you know, you could always rely on Exxon to dump another hard drive on you on Friday afternoon at noon with another terabyte and a million documents on it. And, you know, each they just have documents. lawyer, they have like lawyer power and they process you to death and, and cost you. Yeah. I mean, they will, they will spend, these manufacturers will spend millions of dollars fighting you, even if your case is worth less than what they're spending, just to prove a point that you don't mess with them. Right. Now, I mean, you know, there are, there are guys out there that took them on and you had cases where it was, it was, there was enough of a paper trail, like with the Ford Explorers where the, the tires unwrapped and then the Explorers rolled over and people were killed. There was kind of a rash of that 15 or 20 years ago. And, you know, people had to get hurt because the, ultimately the remedy is that you're seeking monetary damages. You're seeking money. So if, if your goal is to just redesign the streets, you can't get a judge to, it's not a specific enough um, remedy. You know what I mean? It's not- You can't, you can't bring like, I, I also think of like the ADA, uh, you know, ADA access, where now everything that gets built has to include ramps and access for people with disabilities. And it's like, okay, is there an angle there where the city has to be compelled to provide safe passage for people that don't have cars? And the proof right now is that X amount of pedestrians are killed, X amount of people are injured annually. As a result of there not being safe access for disabilities? Well, people that don't have cars or even people that drive cars that get injured and are killed. Like this transportation system that we have compared to other transportation systems in the world is horrific. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of injury. That seems like a design flaw that the government is imposing and there the whole would... the whole thing is like a ford explorer with wheels that are unwrapping yeah and, and and i don't disagree with you guys on this you know i i have sued the city i don't know how many times um in multiple wrongful death cases and multiple personal injury cases over unsafe roadways and in each case, actually, I think one of the responses by the city was, fine, we won't build any bike infrastructure. 
um, which didn't help the bike community. <laughs> I feel bad yeah. about that. But at the same time, what they like in one case, what they did was they there was a trench in the road and they striped a bike lane right over the trench and pointed the arrow into the trench. And my client followed the arrow and crashed as a result of the trench and, and destroyed his arm. And it is so hard. It is so hard to get this city to change roads and and the threat of a lawsuit is a bigger incentive to them than actually suing them seeking some remedy that the court will throw out if you file a lawsuit against the city saying you need to redesign all the streets so that they're safe because all these people are getting killed the court won't even give itself jurisdiction to hear that case. The court will dismiss that case because it will say there's something called a demur, which is when you file a lawsuit and the defendant files something that is intended to dismiss your lawsuit. And it's because you failed to state a cause of action. A cause of action must allege specific facts that a court can have jurisdiction over hearing and a specific remedy that the court can either impose itself or allow a jury to impose. So what you're talking about is you're turning the courts into urban planners or you're turning your jury into urban planners. And they're more like movie critics. You can't get them to write the script all you can do is get them to criticize the movie that's already made. No, I think we'll accept, I think we'll accept the judgment. Hey, what uh, happened with that Supreme Court case, Josh? Which one? Um, you mentioned something when I talked to you about this, where somebody tried to do this and, and took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court threw it out. Somebody was suing car makers for climate change. And I think that they were, I had a vague awareness of this case when I was, doing environmental law many years ago. I wasn't involved in the case, but I think that the car makers got it thrown out too on a causation theory, which was, we just make the cars. People are driving them. People put gas in them. There's also gas in them. There's all, you know, there's also coal fire power plants. There's all these other sources of greenhouse gas emissions. How do you prove we're the ones that are warming the climate? So, mm. It's, you know, causation is a rigorous legal standard that you have to have it. You can't just say this is causing this thing. You have to be able to prove it. And the plaintiffs could, have the burden of proof. Is there, okay, so the, the state sets up, I, I guess it's more of a federal level policy where there's a federal design guide for streets then there's a state level design guide for streets there's no possibility of making a comparison drawing a comparison between our transportation system and other countries transportation system and their safety record and our safety record there's no causation and please forgive me i'm very much not educated on how to speak in terms of legalese, but it's like, is there no causation there that can be proven that this transportation system is designed badly? Well, you tell me like what, you know, I'm the jury. Okay. What specifically are you asking me to do? I'm just 12 people the sitting in a box in front of a judge. You tell me what we're supposed to do. Design a transportation system that affords access. Oh, wait, wait. You're at, you're not safe. Asking them to design something. We're at no. We're suing. Okay, let's say we're suing the state Caltrans or whatever. We're suing Caltrans to design a transportation system that provides reasonable, safe access 
for everyone, every road user, including pedestrians and cyclists, who right now are shown to be, you know, X percentage more, uh, uh, there's X percentage more deaths among pedestrians and cyclists. Um, so they're not being served properly by the design of this transportation system. Right. So you're going to ask 12 lay people <laughs> to do that? Well, we could choose who they are, right? Can we choose the jury? I mean, you're going to fill it full of roadway engineers and urban planners. I mean, do you see, like, as we talk, as we have this conversation, you know, my point is that I wish that we could do this as by litigating, but the people that we really want to scare are the ones who make these decisions initially. And the way that we scare them is by showing them that someone has already been hurt there mm -hmm. and proving to them by that means that it's dangerous. Okay. And then, and then saying, you're going to keep getting hit with lawsuits. You're going to get, and, and all the, let me just finish. All we can get when we sue the government, all we can get is money. We can't sue them to do something that we want them to do like that. Oh, okay. So, and that's actually together, a law. That's a statute. We put together a superstar team that goes through Switters finds t the the hot spots first and just go street by street block by block and we're, yeah, that's we're been, suing that's been done. for money okay how do we ramp it up okay so so the next question is do you have standing and standing is a legal threshold that allows you in the door it means you somehow suffered a wrong because of this condition. So did you, Don Ward, get hurt as a result of this thing? I know you got hit by a car. I know the guy drove up. But you know But but we could could we find the families of people that have died or been injured and they do they have standing? Yeah, I mean they have standing, assuming the statute of limitations hasn't passed. But then the question becomes like, you know, you've got six months. If you're suing a state or a municipality, you've got six months to make a claim first. Then they have to reject it. And then you have to file the lawsuit. John, or if it's a federal entity, you've got a year. John, so um, we, would I, need to, we, would, okay. we would need to find, hang on, just really quick, man. We would need to find like a fresh injury and then we can use the Switters data to, you know, I guess bolster the case, right? And then we would sue on behalf of that person who just recently got injured is what maybe you're well, saying. And then the other issue is, is there design immunity? And 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 design immunity means that the municipality looked at the they did all the math they they looked at various configurations and then they decided you know what we're not going to do any of that we've looked at it it's there it's the show your work rule from i don't know if you remember from you know school math classes where the teachers like don't just tell me the answer show your work so as long as they show their work, they're actually entitled to dismiss safer measures as long as they've considered them. We only asked John to be on here for two minutes more. And John did this whole thing without lawsuits that might pertain. I, first of all, I love this conversation. It's like Mercury trying to find any little crack we can get through. So Josh, I appreciate the back and forth. I was learning a lot from this. And I want to bring up briefly that actually in 2015, there was 
Well, let me say this. I think Josh's point that jury are not engineers, they're not policymakers is correct. I and mean, I think there might be a feeling to lean on lawsuits to bring in some of these changes, but at the end of the day, I think they're, they have to be done through democracy, through our planners, through the city system. But I, I wanted to mention briefly in 2015, the LA city had a, a settlement. It was the largest disability class action settlement in, the, in US history. It was called the Willett Settlement and a bunch of uh, disability groups actually sued LA city saying that their sidewalks were inaccessible, if you were, especially if you were in a wheelchair or a walker. And they won. I'm not the one that was a settlement. And so the city invested a billion dollars into its sidewalk repair program. But even today, if you look at the sidewalk repair request, there is a huge bat law. And if you don't have a disability, you probably won't get your sidewalk fixed because they're automatically prioritizing those with disabilities. And so for me, that was just another example of how, sure, you can sue, you can even get a lot, you can get the largest class action lawsuit of money. But is that going to change the system if you don't have policymakers sort of behind the scenes actually changing the system? And so I wanted to add that. And the second thing I wanted to add is at the end of the day, it's, I think you're right. It's about money. It's about resources coming into the communities to change the system. And the way that we've done it in tobacco, I mean, there was a master settlement agreement, but I think the way California has really kicked butt and really reduced the smoking rates has been through its tobacco tax. And, you know, for those who don't know, there was a three different tobacco taxes. There was Prop 99. Prop 10, and just recently in 2016, Prop 56. And all together, they raised the cost of cigarettes, each pack of cigarettes by $2.75. And that money then came into public health departments, went into um, community groups to educate the public and pass anti-smoking ordinances. And so for me, and that is a perfect example of a public health success, where we recognize a problem in our society we tax something or bring revenue, some resource in, and then we disperse that revenue back into the public to change minds and policies and laws. And in our case, perhaps even street design. And so whether it's like a congestion tax, whether it's a gas tax or congestion pricing, I know there's new creative mechanisms in which we can start gaining revenue from the use of cars and gasoline. I think we need to seriously start thinking about what is a, a predictable and significant revenue stream we can bring in to really move the public on infrastructure change. Talking about tobacco, it's like at one point, cigarette smoking was seen as culturally cool. Mm -hmm. And then these propositions were passed by the public, right? The, the people voted for that or were these voted by the legislature? No, these, are, these are all public, yep. Okay, so so the public came around to realize that cigarette smoking is deadly, and we went from cigarette smoking is cool to cigarette smoking is deadly. We got to do something about this. How would that look, idealistically speaking, uh, when it comes to transportation? You know, I think uh, we're what, I think what, we're what parallels can we draw there? I mean, you see younger kids nowadays, they, there's like I think record low rates of a driver's license or people getting driver's license because more and more younger folks um, don't see the need to drive or prefer not to drive. I think, I mean, at least in Los Angeles, I feel like there is a revival. I don't want to say revivalism. I'm not that old, but like, I think there is definitely a push towards more active transportation amongst the younger folks. I think with the election of Nithya Raman in city council is an indication of sort of a progressive movement in that direction. So, I mean, it's a cultural change, right? And I think more and more people are realizing, you know, a life where the car should not be a requirement to, to get by, to have a job, to go to school. I mean, I, I feel like that's more of an economic thing. Like cars are really expensive and a lot of people just can't afford it. Like as soon as people, you know, a lot of young people that I know that uh, spend a lot of time riding bikes. I'm seeing like, hey, I can finally afford a car, you know, or something like that. Maybe that's hopeful, you know, but I feel like it's more economic than it is cultural, if if that makes sense. I, I think we should be we should be looking towards a lot of the infrastructure bill action that's coming down the road too, and the fact, I mean, like. If there's any one takeaway from our conversation today, it's with from my message, it's that the, the courts don't currently, as they're configured and the laws don't currently offer us a, a viable way uh, via litigation. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a viable way, period, because we've got Pete Buttigieg right now who's in there saying, you know, stuff like you shouldn't have to own a car to be a functional productive member of society and and Biden is is expanding the definition of 
um, infrastructure and, and pushing this infrastructure bill. We've got the Senate, we've got the House, at least for the next two years. And we've got Nithya Raman, at least in CD4, which is my district. And to me, there's, there's a, there are at least you know, dots that we can connect to, to getting the ball rolling. And I think that some of the obstacles um, are political and, and nimbyism. And you know, there's a, let's face it guys, like we are up against a pretty big anti-bike culture in LA and a pretty big pro-car culture. And a lot of people see it as a zero sum issue whether it's, you know, they don't see us coexisting. It's like either the road belongs to us or you, and you're going to lose because we're bigger. So, you know, the fact that at this point right now, we at least have elected officials and, and appointed officials and potentially some money that that's, you know, I mean, I don't know if you guys are tracking sunset for all, but, but there is money coming in to make incremental changes. And there's also hope. I think. Yeah, we're just a little sick of incremental changes. <laughs> I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Um, I wish that, you know, we could just flip a switch and it all happened all at once. And maybe it will someday. I mean, mobility plan 2035, you know, it's still, it's only 2021, right? It's only been six years since they passed that thing. We're going to call you Grandpa Cohen at that time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you back on here and, you know, tell us about it. <laughs> um, all right. I'm alive well, still. Let's try to remain hopeful. And um, I think you're right. I did hear really good things coming out of uh, the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg. We're trying to get him on the show with Laura Friedman to talk uh, transportation, so. And Nithya. Um, we need to get Nithya back on. She was, we've had her on a couple of times and it's just mind blowing that she won. Um, so that's very promising, especially for uh, Council District 4. So and with Mike Bonin, um, and we haven't really heard from Kevin DeLeon about how he's gonna fall on transportation issues that I've seen. And there's a lot of flap going on in Eagle Rock with the BRT and the bike, the bike lanes over there. So there's, there is hope in the city of Los Angeles. It's, it's, uh, you know, we're not going to be like full on Debbie Downers here after talking about how it's impossible to sue to get what we want. But, um, I didn't say that. Or it's hard. No, what to I see. said was that the threat of, and, and, and listen, everybody should have my 311.org downloaded on their phones. Okay. And they should, you should be like anytime you come across an intersection or a section of roadway that feels unsafe to you, take a picture of it, upload it and write a description of it and, and just, you know, keep at it, be diligent. And, and that goes into a file in the city. And when something bad happens there and, and they realize they were put on notice, then it's a it's a red flag for for the rest of it you know that that we need we you know the city has given us the means to give them notice and once they have notice notice is the key when the city has notice and something bad happens after that you can put it right in front of the the the, the whoever you're deposing in your deposition because you got it from them in discovery and you can say, look, somebody put the city on notice that this was an unsafe section of roadway, didn't they? And yet nobody ever went out there. You guys put a little patch of asphalt right there. And yet, like, nobody did anything to fix the rest of it. <laughs> it sounds like the bike path, too, where there's, like, roots causing bumps in the bike path. And, like, rather than fix it, they just put a sign up, like, and that's it i guess like yeah well those they have recreational trail immunity on bike path you're talking about the river path yeah well i'm orange line bike path is where i've seen mm. it a lot but also the river path where some good samaritan is spray painted lines but i'm talking out on the orange line bike path um there's signs 
I forget exactly what it says, maybe like rough road or something like that, that they put up and it's been up for months from what I, last time I saw. So it was kind of funny that that was the solve. Yeah. No, I get, I've gotten calls on that. <laughs> um, Josh Cohen, thanks for coming on and brainstorming and, and uh, educating us. We really appreciate it. We want to have you back on sometime and pick your brain some more. Um, John Yee, also, thank you for coming on and talking yeah, pedestrian bridge and, and having this discussion. Um, I'm trying to think of a hopeful note. It's the Pete Buttigieg angle. He's been saying good things. Biden, good. Two years. We got this. Uh, Three one one. That's a good one. Yeah. is good. Nithya. Okay. I'm feeling better. <laughs> We're ending on an up here. <laughs> and there's people like y'all going, so that's positive too. Who's that? Say that again. There's people like y'all keeping the conversation going too. So that's <laughs> see that Nick. We we do matter. We, we're, yeah. we're... <laughs> okay. So no, thank um, you guys for doing what you do. Yeah. Thanks. All guys. right, guys. We'll we'll definitely have you back on and uh, talk some more. Thanks for coming on. Have a good weekend, Bye, guys. Week. Shows I care Every turn of the pedal Cleans the air Green in the green I'm saving the planet Just like my friends Daryl, Sean, Toby, and Janet No greenhouse gas A tiny carbon footprint Up your ass I'm on a motherfucking bike Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk If you want to hear more Go to kpfk.org Navigate to Programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the Archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 